thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Thank you, and welcome to this Bible study. Currently studying the book of Daniel, who plays a very important role in uh, understanding the book of Revelation. What we've seen last time, uh, as we read through the book of Daniel, is the first two visions um, that Daniel had. And these two visions are actually related one to the other. The first vision had four beasts, and, sorry, Dan, Daniel, here we go. And those four beasts are to, to be understood as four kingdoms. This is starting in chapter 7. And there were four beasts that came out of the sea, and those four beasts are to be understood as four kingdoms. The Babylonian the Medo-Persian, the kingdom of Alexander, and then his four generals. And then the last beast that was not described is the Roman Empire. Now, in some of your Bibles, you may have a commentary on the book of Daniel that might say otherwise. I may tell you that it actually refers to the Babylonians for the first beast. The second beast is the Medo, the, the Empire of the Medes, or possibly Medo-Persian. And the third one is Cyrus and his four kings. And the fourth one is Alexander, and they omit the Romans. The reason why they do that is because most of the time, you can check that in, in, your, in, your, in the commentary, they may tell you that the book of Daniel was actually penned down during the Maccabean revolution against Antiochus Epiphanes, which is about 200 BC. So it's 300 BC, 200 years after the events of Daniel. And they will let you, or they will indicate that the author is actually using Daniel to communicate something important at the moral level. But you're kind of left a little bit in doubt as to whether Daniel had actually those visions or not. Because after all, if it, it was written after the events, meaning after the Babylonian kingdom had come and gone, after the Medo-Persian kingdom um, had come and gone, after the kingdom of Alexander had come and gone, and now we are living during that period where the four generals and their successors are fighting each other before the Roman Empire took over the area, then you're kind of left wondering well, did he really have those visions to begin with, or not? Ironically, this position was taken by, a, by I believe, a non-Christian during St. Jerome's time, and St. Jerome wrote the book of Daniel in part to respond to his analysis, and that particular person had took that position, that effectively the book of Daniel was written during the second century, and that uh, there was no mention made of the Roman Empire, and St. Jerome is very much opposed to this approach. I, uh, this kind of analysis of scripture is typically called critical historical method. The critical historical method is a method that is, a, is an analytical method that purports to identify the geological stratas in the book. Meaning, when you read the book, you recognize, oh, well, that piece was written 
by, by an author during this period, but that piece obviously using different ideas and different images, so it must have come later. So just as if you cut the rock, you see different stratas, and you can say, oh, well, this is, you know, 400,000 years old, and this is 10,000 years old, so they do the same thing. And they do it also in the New Testament. And how many of you have heard of the document Q, or the source Q? So you've got Q, you've got L, you've got a bunch of other sources, and it gets rapidly complex. I personally has, have not found that approach to be very fruitful. It has, usually, it produces boredom in me, more so than anything else. Uh, and the reason being that they are actually analyzing scripture at, the, at purely, or almost purely, at the grammatical level, and at the idiomatic level. And we lose the context, we lose the meaning, we lose the whole unity of scripture. This has not been the approach that the fathers have followed. This is not the approach that you would find when, when the saints are commenting on scripture. They never t do it this way. They take a very, s uh, they take a simpler and more consistent approach, which is this is, this, this is scripture, this is the book of, of God, and when we're told that someone had a vision, someone had a vision. Right? It is not a literary device to communicate something to someone. All right? Furthermore, this position that ignores the kingdom of uh, the Roman kingdom for the fourth, fourth beast and introduces those four kings under uh, Cyrus is really artificial. Because as you will see today, those four kings are mentioned for one reason only, to bring forth the fifth the one that came after them, Artaxerxes, who played a specific role. Other than that, they're never mentioned again. Why then do we attribute a whole kingdom to them? It's really strange. So they have this con construction to help them to, to, to kind of make their case that the book of Daniel was written during the Maccabean Revolution and, and was not prophetic. As, um, as I've showed you, that it is. And you, as you dig deeper into this kind of explanation, you find more and more difficulties. So, you will seldom see me refer to the critical analytical, uh, historical, critical historical method uh, in, in scripture. There are, there's a document put out by the Vatican where they go through the different methods and they do recognize that this particular approach has values, but the value is limited. And furthermore, this method must be used while keeping keeping in mind the unity of scripture. You can't just take a text and slice it and dice it and make it say whatever you want and ignore the rest. Doesn't work. I just wanted to mention that in case you, you happen to read commentaries in your, in your Bible that says otherwise. Uh, the commentaries, by the way, are not inspired. So all that those commentaries say is that this is one commentary put by a theologian and this is their opinion about what that means but it is not to be placed at the same level as scripture itself. Alright? Alright. Now, last week I recommended that you actually read the chap chapter 9, which is a penitential prayer on the part of Daniel. And I hope you did that, because it is very, uh, it's a very fruitful chapter. If you haven't done that, you still have time since we're still in Lent. I think it's a very appropriate reading. Now, let's move on to chapter 10. The reason why I want to spend more time on this is because I want to show you how visions are, remain a very, it's, it's very difficult to understand a vision apart from its immediate historical and political context. Because God wishes to communicate something to us about our reality. And that principle is going to be very important when we hit the book of Revelation. Because typically, the interest that people have in the book of Revelation has to do with the um, eschatological reading, the reading that has to do with the end times. While this is important, there is no denial that it is important. It is not as important as understanding how that book applies today, right now. Because 
you and I have a far greater chance to die before the end of the world. And once we're dead, what does it matter? When the end of the world is going to occur? In a immediately practical sense. Now, in the community of the saints, it matters a lot. Because we're part, hopefully we'll be part of a church, either in purgatory or in heaven, and we are still very much concerned about souls on earth. But immediately, it matters not. Right? So it's important for you to start to sh do that shift away from eschatology, the end of the world, to analogy, today, the church, our reality. How does this book apply today? What is God telling us through the book of John about us today? And in order to do that, we're going to look at that chapter 10 and 11 uh, in the book of Daniel because it shows us how an angel speaks about those realities and we're going to try to understand them based on the historical context in which Daniel was living and those who came after Daniel. So turn to chapter 10. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, notice the dating. In the third year of Cyrus. The third year of Cyrus, so we moved from Belshazzar, who was what? A successor to Nabuchodonosor in the Babylonian kingdom. And now we move through Darius. Remember Darius who had to throw Daniel into the pit of lion and then he got him out. And now we move into Cyrus. So we are under the Persian Empire. And Cyrus is the first king of that, of that lineage. So, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belshazzar, and the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine, entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the twenty-fourth day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with gold of Uphaz, his body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and around and the sound of his words like the noise of multitude you're with me everyone in, in scripture yes now keep your finger there let me see did I bring my other copy doesn't look like I did huh and switch over to the first chapter of the book of Revelation verse 12 then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden girdle round his breast. His head and his hair were white as white wool, white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined as in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters." All right. It is not so. There is a, a great parallel in the images between what John sees and what Daniel sees. It is not clear, however, if this was a theophany for Daniel, meaning an apparition of our Lord in angelic form, or if it actually is the angel, the angel Gabriel, appearing under this form, foreshadowing what was going to come the coming of the great king. It is not clear. Now when I say foreshadowing, I do not necessarily mean that Gabriel knew about the incarnation, but that he was given to appear under this form. Alright? Now you see this parallel between the two, and we're going to spend more time understanding the reason why the Lord appears this way in Revelation, so I'm not going to touch upon it right now. What is important is to notice that in both cases, the, if it's angelic or, the, or if it's a theophany and in the case of the book of Revelation our Lord's apparition is not at all what we would expect it to be and it's very important for us to keep that in mind that we do not take Jesus and turn him into a, uh, you know, a small nice cute Jesus 
that kind of uh, scratch where, where we itch. Alright? We have to be careful in our conception of who the Lord is. Most of the time, our conception of the Lord tends to be limiting. We limit Him to something we can be comfortable with. And the really good sign about that is that if there is no sense of awe before the majesty of the Lord in our dealing with Him, if we're really buddy-buddy, if we're just friends, if we think we can go to Jesus the way we can go to the kitchen, we've got a problem. There's some adjustment that needs to be made. Alright? That's a very important lesson we have to learn. And there the prayer of St. Augustine should be on our lips. Lord, let me know myself that I may know Thee. Let me know myself that I may know Thee. Now, moving along. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. They did not see the vision, but a great trembling, even though they did not see, they sensed a presence. And they fled. And they hid. Why? Why did they... So, so, before I ask you this question, ask yourself this question. Do you understand their behavior? By this I mean, if you were there with them, right now, as you are, would you have done the same? Would you see yourself down, doing the same? So let's say you're standing there by the river, and there's, the river is flowing, and there's this guy, Daniel, who's probably 70 years old, an old man by now, standing with you, and he has a bunch of people around him, and suddenly, you see nothing, you hear the stuff, and there's some bushes over there, and you go and you plunge headlong behind the bush. Do you see yourself doing that? If you don't see yourself doing that, you've not understood the holiness of God. You don't understand in your heart what holiness means. Because the first thing that holiness does is produce in us a sense of fear. Why? Because holiness does not, cannot stand the presence of sin. Cannot. And when holiness is revealed, the truth that comes out of holiness reveals, shines brightly on our sinfulness, on our wretchedness. And when we see that, we're terrified. We don't like what we see. And we go and we hide. So in truth, we're not necessarily afraid of what God will do to us in a sense. We're afraid when we see what we look like. You understand what I'm saying? Saint John of Ars, who was, who's, you know, he's a saint, said, once I asked God to show me myself as I stood before him. And he did so. He did so. And had he not, and he did so for one second, one second, and had he not taken the memory of that vision away from me, I would not have lived. And he adds, I will never ask him this again. St. John of Ars. Did you understand what I'm saying to you? There is a definite strength and force in the words of Christ when he says, If you who are evil, when your son asks you for something to eat, you'll give him a stone, give him a fish, how much more your father will have. If you who are evil, and until we say of ourselves, Lord, I am evil, we haven't humbled ourselves before the Lord. And he, His grace cannot reach us. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? It is, it is nothing else than the recognition of truth. That's the stark truth. I may hate it, I may not like it, but that's the truth. This is who I am. This is my heritage. I am the son of Adam. I am plagued by sin. Whether I like it or not, I am wretched, I am hard-hearted, 
I have secret desires. There are things I would want to do. And then there is before me holy innocence who died for me. Yeah, those reasons for us to run and flee and hide. Unless we accept his mercy and we recognize who we are and then we're transformed. So if you've not understood this passage, if you don't understand what I'm talking to you about, if it sounds completely abstract, if you're getting bored listening to me, I do recommend you take this one passage in prayer, sit down in prayer, read it again, and then just admit honestly before the Lord, I don't get it, Lord. I don't know why they flee and why they hid. I'm not getting it, but I really want to get it. Help me understand. And the Holy Spirit will work through your heart gently. Gently. That's the operative word. Gently. To help you bit by bit see what they saw. So I was left alone and saw this great vision and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words and when I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Again, I'm not going to comment. I think I've commented enough on this. Take this in prayer and then try to understand it. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He's 70 years old. On his hands and knees. Trembling. Just think about that. Visualize Daniel, this holy man, this old man, on his knees and hands, trembling. Try to feel the force of what's going on here. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your mind to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. So what attracted Gabriel to him? He seeks to understand, and he humbled himself. Those two things attracted Gabriel. Those two things will attract God to you like lightning to water. Those two things. A real passion and thirst for knowing Christ. Unconditional. Wherever the truth will lead me, Lord, I will go. And humility. Will attract God to you like lightning. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. So I left him there with the prince of the kingdom of Persia and came to make you understand what is to befall your people in the latter days. For the vision is for the days yet to come. Who's who's the prince of the kingdom of Persia? Who's that guy? Who's the prince of the kingdom of Persia? These are angelic beings. Right? Every kingdom, every country has an angelic being associated with it. The, the, the conflicts and the drama of human life is associated to a conflict and an invisible drama among angelic beings. We're all joined in that battle. Okay? We're all joined in that battle. How could that angel withstand him? On what account? He withstood him for 21 days. Even though the day he started to pray, Gabriel was sent by God to him to explain to him the vision. Yet that angel of Persia withstood him. What did they do? How did they withstand each other? I mean, what do they do? Do they have like, you know, Jedi swords and they fight? How do angels deal with this? St. Jerome says that what the angel of Persia did is simply go before the throne of God and contend that the vision should not be revealed to Daniel on account of the sins of his people. In other words, all he had to do is accuse the people of Daniel of their sins before the throne of God. And we should always keep in mind that the the devil is going to be our, our accuser when we appear before the throne of God for our personal judgment. He will be there accusing us. Okay? 
He will be there accusing us. In fact, St. Francis in his commentary on Our Lady said that when the angel appeared before, when, when Our Lady appeared for her personal judgment, the angel leveled two accusations against her. The first one was that when she was pregnant, she knew that she was carrying the, the, the Son of God, and yet she undertook a very dangerous journey, putting him into danger. When, he sh when she went to visit her, her cousin, St. Elizabeth. And the second accusation is that she did nothing to prevent his crucifixion. So another, another really interesting point. What are the things that the angel would accuse you of before the throne of God? That's always a really good point of meditation for us as part of our examination of conscience. Imagine you're standing right there before the throne of God. The Lord is right there and the accuser is right there. And you can't speak. You have no say. Just as in a Jewish tribunal, the one accused has no say. But he says, matters not. Can't say anything. Can't say, well, but Lord, I knew that, but Lord, I, you know, he broke my leg and can't say anything. The accuser is speaking. That's a really good point of meditation, especially uh, for confession. When he had spoken to me according to his words, I turned my face toward the ground and was dumb. What would he be dumb? Does this make sense to you? What would he be dumb? Why would Daniel be dumb when he spoke to him like this? You see, th th that's why I doubt, I highly doubt that this was fabricated by someone who lived under the Maccabees. Because the, the author of this text has deep, deep insight into the mystical life. The psychological behavior that he gives to Daniel, the way Daniel behaves, cannot be fabricated by someone who does not understand the mystical interior life. And how dealing with angels, what dealing with angels does to us. Okay? It, confronted with angelic beings, we have nothing to say. Um, it'd be like, to give you a, a little bit, a little understanding of this, uh, how many of you play the piano? How many of you play any musical instrument? Okay, so here you are at a concert and you're playing a musical instrument and you played your piece, right? And then, this guy, Mozart, shows to the door, sits at the piano, takes your piece, and plays it. What happens to you? You're dumbfounded, right? Have nothing to say. Mozart is, he's a genius as far as music is concerned, but he's a human being. You have an archangel right in front of you, and he's speaking the truth. What are you going to say? One plus one equals two? You, you understand the psychology? That's what I'm saying. Until you're confronted with that type of holiness, you've not experienced this. And God wants you to experience this, but He's not going to force that on you. He's, gonna, he's not going to force it on you. He's going to wait for you to ask for it. That's what, that's what he wants to do with every one of you, with your personal lives. And you ask him by insistently being in his presence through prayer, by humbling yourself and by having great thirst for the truth. Alright, we're not making much progress, are we? So I'd, I'd better accelerate here, otherwise we're just going to be here forever. Alright, so again I touch him and then we, we get into the vision. And it says, Do you know what I have come to you? But, but do you know why I have come to you? Now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I'm through with him, lo, the prince of Greece will come. Right? So there's another guy waiting in tow. The prince of Greece. Okay, why? Because the prince of Greece is preparing the next attack. Military movements here are associated with angelic movement above. It's very hard for us to conceive of this because we're so materialistic. 
we're so technologically oriented, we think everything is under control. And we've kind of took the angels and we threw them out. But I will tell you, there is no, none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. That's why Michael was thought to be the guardian angel of the Jewish people. And then, as the Jewish people turn into the church, St. Michael is the guardian of the Catholic Church. And that's why we have that prayer to St. Michael, the, uh, the, the archangel. Right? Because it's rooted in this vision. He is the protector of the church among the angelic host. He is the prince of the angels. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And, and so notice he says, And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, not Cyrus, Darius, I stood up by his side. So the battle started even with Darius and Cyrus. Why? Because under Darius and Cyrus, the position of the Jews started to improve. And it was Cyrus who gave order that the temple be rebuilt. So the battle was raging among the angels to allow the king to give that order to go forth and rebuild the temple. But notice that Michael and Gabriel don't have an easy life. What is underlying all of this is the power also of the demons. And so if Michael and Gabriel are having such a rough time fighting against those just to get one thing done, which is the, 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 um, to, give, um, to, to give this order that the temple be rebuilt, how could the angels themselves ever bring salvation to us? They could not. They could not. So they too were awaiting our salvation. They too were praying for our salvation. And they too were wondering, how would God do it? Because they did not have foreknowledge of this. Only God knew. The revelation of Jesus Christ was not a revelation purely to humans. It was also a revelation to the angelic beings. Just as much it was a revelation to us, it was a revelation to them. Okay? And now I'll show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. So now follow me using this page two. I said four earlier, I have to take it back, it's actually three, right? After Cyrus, we have Cambyses, Cambyses, Smyrdas the Magi, and Darius. That Darius, of course, is a different Darius than the Mede, right? And in the second year of his reign, the rebuilding of the temple began. Now, Cersus was assassinated by Artabanus, who never became a king, and then Artaxerxes is the guy who actually became really rich and he's the guy who began the attack against Greece. Under him, the attack against the, the uh, uh, empire of the Greece started. So, the reason why he says three is because one of them was assassinated and never really reigned, but there were really four. You follow me on that? So three will come and then the fourth will be the one who will do all these things. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. Now notice what, Daniel, what Gabriel does. He then moves away from Artaxerxes all the way to Alexander. That then a mighty king shall arise. We skip over Xerxes, Sodianus, so Darius, Nothos, Artaxerxes, Nemon, Artaxerxes, Ochus, Arces, and Darius. And then we go to Alexander. He's the mighty king that will arise. And what happens is his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven. The four winds represent the four generals that will come after Alexander and rule. And then he tells him that, but not to his posterity, nor according to the dominion with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others beside these meaning that none of Alexander did not have a ch children and none of his own lineage reigned after him. So now we move away from the Persian kingdom and follow with me on page 3 to, the, to Alexander and his four generals. And then those four generals are Philip, who was his half-brother, Antigonus, who, and, and then Ptolemy, 
and uh, Seleucius Nicanor. Most of the focus is going to be on Egypt, which is considered to be south, and Seleucius Nicanor, who ruled in Babylonia and Syria, although it's the eastern kingdom moving forward, and we consider the northern kingdom, because the point of reference is Judea. They're viewing it from the point of view of Judea. So if you're in Judea, Syria is to the north, and Egypt is to the south. Alright? Then the king of the south shall be strong. But one of his princes shall be stronger than he, and his dominion shall be a great dominion. So the king of the south, he's talking about Egypt. And he's talking about Seleucus Nicanor. The one who's, been, who's going to be stronger than him is Antiochus Soter. Antiochus Soter, who rules after him, is the one who's stronger. And he had, you know, he turned his kingdom in one that is extremely powerful. Notice the title, Soter. Soter means son. The son king. And he's followed by what? He's followed by another Antiochus, who calls himself Antiochus Theos. What is Theos? God. Not the son, God. Alright? So let me just say that these folks had a slight problem in the Department of Humility. Yeah, I didn't mean, I meant Syria, I said Egypt. It's actually, those guys are in Syria, right? So, the, the, let me flip over to, to because, because Antiochus Soda and Turkish Theos also had very powerful kingdoms on their end. But, first it was in, in Egypt, Ptolemy had um, had um, ruled in Egypt and strengthened e Egypt and during his reign the Septuagint which is the Greek translation of scripture was written in Alexandria alright so under him was th that work took place then you have Ptolemy Eurigets and he's his son and he's the guy who was extremely powerful right and he was he had a whole series of battles against the kingdom of of the north a whole series of battles now Antiochus Theos got really tired of Ptolemy Eurigets, and so he decided to give him. Uh, yeah, no, the other way around. Ptolemy, Uyghur, U, Ptolemy got really tired of Antiochus in Egypt. He wanted to put an end to all of this, so he gave him his sister Berenice in marriage. Now Antiochus Theos had another wife whose name was Laodice, and he promised. Ptolemy that he's going to consider Berenice his wife. But it wasn't long before he switched back to Laodice. Now Laodice was a, a fine lady who, being afraid of her husband's changing mind, assassinated him. She poisoned him, and then she managed to poison, to kill Berenice and his, and his son, and her son. And then she made her son the king which is Seleucius Calinius. Well, Ptolemy Eurigets, who was the brother of Berenice, didn't like that, so he waged a major war against the son of Laodice. And then, Ptolemy Philopator, his son, followed suit and waged an even greater war on Antiochus Epiphanes, who's known as Antiochus the Great. There's two Antiochus Epiphanes, we shouldn't confuse them, because it gets confusing in reading the account in Daniel, right? Um, so, Antiochus Epiphanes, trying to calm down the whole situation, gives his daughter Cleopatra in marriage to Epiphanes. Everybody thinks that Cleopatra was a descendant of the pharaohs and all that. That's myth, nothing to do with reality. Right? She comes actually from Syria. So, she then marries um, uh, Epiphanes, and the reason why Antiochus Epiphanes did, did this, when she, he gives her in marriage to Epiphanes, is in thinking that she will sway him towards her father. She ends up turning against her dad. Alright? Lastly, Antiochus Epiphanes, the son of the first one, the brother of Seleucus Philopator, who died very quickly, fought against Ptolemy Philopator, the son of Cleopatra, at which point Rome enters the picture. And Rome says to Antiochus Epiphanes, go back home, 
you're not going to touch Egypt because they're friends of us. So he does. But in the process, now notice, in the middle of all of this, what do you have? You have Judea. Okay? Judea is smack between Egypt and Syria. So every time these guys fight, what do they go through? Well, they're going to go through, you know, Lebanon and Palestine and Judea. So what happened was that at one point, the Judeans themselves got split among two camps. Those supporting the south and those supporting the north. And, in particular, you had a high priest, the high priest Onias, fled to Egypt, taking a large number of Jews along with him, and was given by Ptolemy an honorable reception. He then received the region known as Heliopolis, and by a grant of the king, he erected a temple in Egypt. He erected a temple in Egypt like the temple of the Jews, and it remained standing up until the reign of Vespasian over a period of 250 years, but then the city itself, which was known as the city of Onias, was destroyed to the very ground because of the war which the Jews had subsequently waged against the Romans. And this is the war of the Jews that we will talk about when we get to the Gospels. This is around the year 66 AD. There is consequently no trace of either city or temple now remaining, but as we were saying, countless multitudes of Jews fled to Egypt on the occasion of Onias' pontificate, and the land was filled with a large number from Cyrene as well. For Onias affirmed that he was fulfilling the prophecy written by Isaiah, There shall be an altar of the Lord in Egypt, and the name of the Lord shall be found in their territories. What did Onias do? He read that prophecy in Isaiah, which now we know that this prophecy was meant about the church. The altar is the altar of the church. He ascribed this to himself and said, oh, well that means we have to build an altar in the Lord. Let's go and build another temple. In the process, forgetting what? Forgetting that the Lord destroyed Samaria and shipped the ten tribes away precisely because they did not adore him in Jerusalem. But this particular high priest took it upon himself to reinterpret scripture against the tradition and against the commandments of the Lord thinking he was doing the right thing. So you see, here's a particular example of someone relying on scripture only and doing the wrong thing. Now, what I just read to you in summary is precisely what you see in this chapter 11. This is what Daniel is talking about. He's referring to all these events that are going to take place, one by one, to bring us what? To the second Antiochus Epiphanes. Why? Because the second Antiochus Epiphanes, as I said, went to Egypt, wanted to conquer it, was not allowed to do so. So in wrath, he turns around, goes to Judea, goes up to the temple, and places a statue of Jupiter in the Holy of Holies, and sacrifices a pig on the altar. That is the abomination of desolation of which Gabriel will speak. You understand? That's the abomination of desolation. This is what started the Maccabean revolt and the Maccabean war. In the book of the Maccabees, if you've not read it, I recommend you read it, people were asked to worship Jupiter and to worship the emperor, Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphany, right? It's the apparition of God. And there is an account of one woman who had seven boys, and the seven boys were all tortured before her eyes, one by one, asked to adore the emperor or be killed, and they had their eyes plucked and their tongue burned, and all these wonderful things happened to them in front of their mother, and she encouraged them all the way through not to renounce their faith. And she got killed last. Read it. This is how important it is to hold to the faith. This is how important it is to hold to the faith. And oh, by the way, if someone comes to you with a gun, puts it to your head, and your children are next to you, and says, do you renounce your belief in the Lord Jesus Christ? And if you said yes, you've committed a mortal sin. You understand me? For whoever loves mother, father, children, more than me, is not worthy of me. That's what he meant. That's faith. 
That's faith. Yes. Antiochus Epiphanes. Yes. I mean, I don't know if the sacrifice... The, the fact that he sacrificed a pig is not recorded here. It is through uh, Jewish tradition that we know that that's what he sacrificed in the temple. So, verse 29. At the time upon and he shall return and come into the south. Meaning, Antiochus Epiphanes shall come into the south. Right. But it shall not be this time as it was before, for ships of Ketim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid to withdraw, and shall turn back, and, he, and, and be enraged, and take actions against the Holy Covenant. This is when the Romans told him, go back home. Enough. So he turns around, goes to Judea, and then he's enraged, and he takes action against the Covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the continual bird offering, and I shall, shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And those among the people who are wise shall make many understand, though they, they shall fall by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder, for some days. When they fall, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery, and some of those who are wise shall fall to refine and to cleanse them, and to make them white until the time of the end, for it is yet for the time appointed. Okay? You notice the, the apocalyptic wording used, the time of the end, but the, but the time of the end is not immediately the end of the world. Alright? It is analogically the end of the world. We can apply it to the end. What happens there in Judea back then is a small pattern. It's like the pattern of what we should be expecting towards the end of the world. You understand? It's a repetition of what will happen towards the end of the world. That's the four senses. This is what the four senses give us. And it is also a pattern for the life of the church on earth. Never ever expect the church... No, let me put it different. If we are ever in a situation where the church is comfortable with the world, and we are accepted, and Catholicism is popular, tremble. Tremble. If we are accepted by the world, and they like us as Catholics, and Catholicism is looked upon as a good thing, tremble. The church is in great danger. But as long as they despise us, they don't like us, they don't like our morality, they call us names, rejoice. I'm not making this up. The Beatitudes is exactly that. We're not here to be enjoyed by the world. Never. What you see here is a constant strife of the church throughout the centuries. But don't be alarmed, don't be afraid, don't think that because this is happening, the church is going to go away. Just as they didn't go away, the remnant stayed till Christ came and went on, it will, it will go on. Okay? Now, the interesting thing is that if you flip over to the book of Matthew, we have a little bit of time, the book of Matthew, you will see again how this text echoes. Yeah, 24. Jesus left the temple after the seven woes that he pronounced, right? When he said, yeah, the seven woes, the seven terrible woes of the Lord, which I'm not going to repeat now, but we're going to come back and study them. What I want to just read to you is 24. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. So, just for you to understand the, 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 the temple, in this church, right here in that space where we are, we probably could fit maybe four stones of the temple in the space where we're sitting. Right? Maybe four. Three. Maybe four. I just want you to Take note of the dimension of this. Alright? So, it was a sight to behold. And then Jesus says, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And when I read you the account of the word of the Jews by Josephus, this happened literally. Literally. To the letter. He wasn't meaning symbolically. 
As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when will this be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the close of the age? I hope now you understand this language a little bit better. Alright? The sign of your coming, they don't necessarily mean your coming as we understand it materialistically. Alright? Jesus has John Wayne on a horse flying in heavens with a lasso. Alright? Or, you know, Jesus swooping down with a whole hordes of angels behind him visibly and then shooting laser beams at... No! This is our problem. We're so materialistic that we immediately envision everything materialistically. That's not how they understood it. Why? Because of Daniel. The day of the Lord. Because of Isaiah. Because of Ezekiel. In all those days, in all those visitations, the Lord was never seen visibly. Was He? Never. Ever. Right? That's the mindset they have. They're Jews. God is not visible. You don't see Him. In all the Old Testament, every time God visited His people, He was never seen, was He? So to the disciples, there's no notion of a physical reality, the way we have it. Alright? And then the close of the age. Not the end of time. The close of the age. What age? Which age? The age spoken of by Daniel. Okay? That's the age. You understand? Why? Because they are still living in the expectation of the prophecy of Daniel that has not yet been fulfilled. Remember last time when we saw that in Daniel, Gabriel told him, His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, all nations shall serve him. Remember that? And I told you one of the bigger problems we have today is to take that literally, physically, this is what the Jews did, and that's why they couldn't understand him. That's the mindset they still have. Jesus is talking to them, where's the kingdom? Not there yet, is it? So the close of the age is what? The age of the diaspora, the age of the exile, the age of being dominated by the Romans, the age when finally the kingdom of God is on, on earth and we're all reigning. Move over Schwarzenegger, Jesus is coming. Do you understand that? Do you understand what they had in mind? What's the background? We, of course, modern Catholics, as we are, have no clue about the Old Testament. What we understand is what is going to happen after us. That's what we're looking. We're always we're so focused on the, on, the, on the future that we forgot the past. We can't read Scripture and understand it the way it was understood, the way it was meant. We understand it only futuristically. Okay? So we miss them, and then we get completely jumbled up and confused. Because Jesus' language is confusing if, that's what, if you consider it to be only the future. Because he tells them, Take heed that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, earthquakes, and this is but the beginning of the sufferings. They understand that right away. As soon as that famines and earthquakes, they remember Moses, they remember Daniel, they remember Isaiah, they remember the four plagues of the covenant. Famine, earthquake. What are the two other ones? He mentioned the third one, wars. Right? And the one that is not mentioned is pestilence. But we've heard of wars, earthquakes, famine. Immediately the covenant comes to mind. Not to us, of course. But to them, they know. Alright, he's basically listening what is going to happen. These things are part of what? The curses that Moses pronounced in, in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy. Alright. We're with you. We're with you, Lord. So far, so good. We know that stuff is coming, but tell us the good stuff. Tell us the good part. Notice that Jesus says, See that you, who he's talking to, immediately. Them. Right? Not late, not early 21st century Christians living in the United States talking about the Russians. He's talking to them directly. 
See that you are not led astray. There are going to be many who come in my name during your lifetime first. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And, that, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because wickedness is multiplied, most men's love will grow cold, but he who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. I don't have time right now to go through all of this. We're going to spend time. I'm going to show you how by Jesus, by the time of the disciples, by the 70 AD, every single one of those words come true. Came true. Every single one of them. The persecution, the hatred, the gospel being preached to all nations, every single one of those have come true. Because we lack the historical context during which the early Christians lived, because we do not understand the span of the gospel, how far it was. Did you know that by 70 AD the gospel was in China? How many of you knew that? In China. Where did St. Thomas die? India. St. Thomas was in India. We have no concept of the range of activities of the apostles. That's why we don't understand the text. We think, oh well, you know, those guys were, well what? Judea, Palestine. I mean, to begin with, most, most people these days don't know their geography. They did the test actually in schools, and they gave a globe to children who were 12 years of age in the United States. A globe with all the countries divided on the globe, but no names. And they gave them one label, the United States. And they asked them to put the label on the globe. 27% of them failed. 12 years of age. They could not put the label on the United States. So, Israel, Syria, Lebanon, Egypt. How do you connect all that? How big are they? Nobody knows. How could you understand this text if you don't know the ge geography, and if you don't know history? You cannot. So when you see the desolating sacrilege spoken of by the prophet Daniel. So to us... Again, our problem. When you see this desolating sacrilege spoken of by the prophet Daniel, what do we understand? What do we visualize? We visualize Daniel standing somewhere speaking. There's a bubble. Desolating sacrilege. Wow. That's insightful. When Jesus says the desolating sacrilege spoken of, he's bringing this whole context just presented to you. All the wars that had happened before between the north and the south that had led finally to Antiochus Epiphanes going to Judea, entering the temple, putting the statue, doing all that the Maccabean revolution, all those who died, all those who suffered that's the backdrop when he says many will be, that will take you to prison, they will take you to jail but don't, but don't be afraid he has in mind what? those martyrs who lived under the Maccabean revolution and who stuck to their faith it's all that context that coming, is coming to life for the disciples. Do you understand? So there's no way on earth you can understand the book of, of the Revelation without that context. You cannot. Well, you can make it say whatever you want. Lots of fun stuff. But to properly understand it, if you don't have that context behind it, there's no way. Then let those who are in Judea flee. Notice, let those who are in Judea. Jesus is definitely not talking about the end of the world, is he? Let those who are in Judea, not in San Diego, right? In Judea. He's directing his discourse not to all Israel, not those in Galilee even. Just the ones in Judea. Why? Because what he has in mind is the destruction of Jerusalem. The wars of the Jews that took place in Judea. That's what he has in mind. That's the end of the age. Why is it the end of the age? Because what is, what makes the old covenant possible? A sacrifice at the temple. No sacrifice, no covenant. If the old is passing away, it means that it has to physically pass away. It's not just a mental idea. Oh, well, you know. That's year's fashion was the old covenant, this year's fashion is the new covenant. Yeah. 
lime yellow. No. Physically, physically, the, the covenant is physical. It is, in, is, it is material. It has a material reality. It is just purely spiritual. That has to pass away. So the whole temple needs to be destroyed. That's the only way you stop the sacrifice. That is why we say the temple of Jerusalem will never be rebuilt. It's passed away. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is in his housetop not go down, etc., etc. And then, and alas, for those who are with child and for those who give suck in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or in the Sabbath. For there's no one who's going to help you on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulations such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been shortened, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. Then if anyone says to you, Lo, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Lo, I have told you beforehand, so if they say to you, Here it is, don't go, etc., right? So, and he talks about, about how he's going to come. And notice the language he uses in 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other. And again... The problem we have is we read this and we have a purely materialistic vision of trumpets and the elect being, um, what is the expression they use again? Raptured, raptured in the clouds. But prophetically, you understand the language, right? When he says, the sun will not give his light, the moon will fall, so what is he saying? The end of the age, because this is the clock. This is the... This is the heavenly clock that measures the lives of empires, of ages. He's saying there is deconstruction in heaven. What has been constructed is now deconstructed because that's the end of the age. Alright? Then the trumpet is what? Is a covenantal judgment. Right? So the loud trumpet is the trumpet given by the angels. Remember when I showed you in Daniel how the fight on earth is accompanied by the fight in heaven? So the angels are also participating into this battle. And you will see the Son of Man. You will not necessarily see the Son of Man physically, but what you will see are the forces of Vespasian and Titus, the Roman forces, besieging Jerusalem and destroying the temple. For those are the forces of the Son of Man. And we're going to understand that better. That's how you see the Son of Man. That you see Him back then, this is how you see Him today. Hasn't changed. That is the appropriate, immediate, literal understanding of prophetic language. Now, you can take all that and move fast forward to the end of times, and yes, the same thing happens. The same thing will happen. But it happens cyclically, over and over and over and over. God uses forces to exact judgment against those who block the covenant. Every time a country rises, every time a force goes up to block, to be against the covenant, to fight against the covenant of the Lord, the Lord will visit His people and He will visit the world. That's how you understand world history. That's how you read the signs of the times. This is how you apply scripture to understand prophetically, meaning wisely, the time we live in. And when you see it this way, you see it from the vantage point of who? The Lord, the risen Lord, Jesus Christ, Lord of Lord, King of Kings. And you're standing by His side. And you're filled with hope, faith, and charity. And peace is given to you. And you are not worried by what happens around you. But you first rejoice in what the Lord is doing in your creation. You rejoice in how He is bringing His people back together, how He is cleansing His church, how He is making His church resplendent and beautiful and all holy. And how His action extends throughout time and throughout space. And you rejoice in His new creation. This is the essence of our faith lived today as it was in the time of Daniel when he was in exile away from the temple had nothing and yet 
he lived. And the Lord himself said, the prophets have seen, was it the prophets of David? Someone has seen my day and has rejoiced. Has rejoiced. So rejoicing is a must for us. And rejoicing means that we live our lives in hope. In the hope of Christ. That's the rejoicing. Let nothing take away your peace. Nothing. Because the Lord has triumphed. And you can't tell him, Lord, I love you, if you don't rejoice in him. That's the strength of your faith. That's how you shine like the sun. That's his promise. This is what scripture is all about. This is what we're studying it. To understand how God works and to love his church. To love his church. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.corbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.